This episode of Lead to Win is brought to you by Michael Hyatt's new book, Entrepreneurs Will Save the World. Discover how anyone can build the resilient mindset of an entrepreneur. Learn more at leadtowin slash entrepreneurs. Hi, I'm Michael Hyatt. And I'm Megan Hyatt-Miller. And this is Lead to Win, our weekly podcast designed to help you win at work and succeed at life. And this week, we want to continue the conversation we started last week about entrepreneurialism. And so last week, we talked about why it matters. This week, we want to talk about the elements of an entrepreneurial mindset. And this, by the way, applies to more than what we might think of as entrepreneurs, those who are formal business owners or founders or launching a startup. But really, an entrepreneur can be anybody, as we said last week, you just have to have the right mindset. Well, Dad, I'm so excited about this topic because I feel like it's really timely right now. You know, there's so much craziness going on in the outside world. And a lot of people, whether you're a business owner or you're working in an organization of some kind, you know, you might be feeling a little tired, a little discouraged after this year, a little disempowered. And what I love about what we're going to talk about today is it is going to put fresh tools in your toolbox that you can grab a hold of and really make the most not only of the rest of this year, but of 2021 as you prepare and think about what could your contribution be uh, to the world, to the greater good, to the economic recovery. There are so many things you can do, but you've got to get your thinking right, as we've been talking about now for a few episodes, and that's exactly what we're going to talk about today. Well, and our premise is that anybody can be an entrepreneur. It's a mindset more than a position, and you just have to adopt the right mindset. Now, when you have a company full of entrepreneurs, more than just the founder, more than just the CEO, more than just the business owner, when you have a company full of entrepreneurs, that is people that eat problems for breakfast, <laughs> people who see behind every problem and opportunity, that creates opportunity for the business. And it really helps you, if you are a business owner, if the people on your team can be thinking like entrepreneurs. And even if you're working in a company and you're not an entrepreneur, you're not at the top of the, the food chain, so to speak, but you're somebody that's maybe managing a department or working for uh, a boss, if you're a problem solver, if you're willing to do that, even at some risk to yourself, for the sake of a reward that's personal or for your colleagues or for your customers, that's going to benefit you. And so it all comes down to a mindset, and that's what we want to get into today. Well, you know, when I think about why we've been so successful this year and why our clients have been so successful, you know, we have about 600 clients in our Business Accelerator coaching program. Um I really think that this is the key. I, I look back at March and April, especially, and I think about the pivoting that we did and probably so many of you listening did. And it really wasn't about one person's genius. It wasn't about my genius or your genius dad to kind of like, oh, we have the master plan to face this thing that no one's ever faced before, you know, in modern history. We instead really leveraged the entrepreneurial mindset of our team. And we had so many great ideas, such can-do spirit that came from our team. And they really deserve the credit for our success. As a result, we're on track to uh, beat our original budget perhaps by as much as 50%. Um, and that wouldn't be possible except for the traits that we're going to talk about today that are part of this entrepreneurial mindset that our, our team members have adopted and so many of our clients' teams have adopted. And that's why we want to talk to you about it today because you can access these things too. We literally have about 40 people who are entrepreneurs mm -hmm. 
who all have a mindset of innovation, being can-do, being positive, and all the rest, all those other mindset things. But we want to talk about four specific mindset shifts that you and your team need to make if you're going to be successful, not just in the current crisis, because my guess isn't this, this isn't going to be the last crisis you face. You know, I would, I would like to have thought about 10 years ago that the Great Recession was the last economic downturn that I would experience in my lifetime, that it was a, you know, once in a hundred year kind of thing. But no, here we are a decade later, boom. And I mean, it's always something. And your mindset is the thing that makes the difference. And in fact, we like to ask this question at Michael Hyde and Company, what does this adversity, what does this situation, what does this hardship, this challenge, this setback, what does this make possible? And so that's sort of the foundation, the underlying shift or the thing that will shift your thinking more than anything else. So Meg, let's talk about the first one. Yeah, well, the first one I think is really the foundational one, and that's ownership. I mean, this is at the center of the entrepreneurial mindset. Somebody who has the uh, mindset trait of ownership doesn't pass the buck. They don't see problems as something for someone else to solve, something to walk by. You know, they don't see the mess on the floor and walk by and know that somebody will come by with a mop later on. They, they stop, they go get the paper towels and they wipe up the spill on the floor because if they see it, it's their job to take care of it. And, you know, that that's a, a small, ordinary example, but that's what we want people to do all the time in our business. When they encounter, or organizations for that matter, because this is not just about for-profit businesses, it can be any kind of organization. When they encounter a customer who's having a problem or they see a systemic issue, we want them to immediately go to work on how can I make that better? How could I solve that? It's my job to do that. You know, it's my job to come up with the solutions and to rally their resources and the resources of the people around them to brainstorm and come up with a plan. And I think this is one of the most powerful traits that you can ins install in your business um, because what happens when you do this is you replicate yourself. If you're the business owner, you're the leader of a team or the leader of a company or an organization, all of a sudden you have delegated a level of responsibility that gives you a much greater wingspan. You don't have to be the one solving all the problems. You don't have to be the one that has all the ideas because actually the best solutions and the best ideas come from your people. You know, when I was 15, I took my first job. Now I had other jobs before. I was like mowing lawns, selling greeting cards, you know, door to door, doing a bunch of that kind of stuff that, you know, most kids do when they're, they're trying to uh, make a few extra dollars to, to spend on their hobby. But when I was 15, I took my first job in a restaurant. And I remember seeing there was a big mess. Somebody spilled something in the back of the restaurant, you know, in the kitchen. And I remember asking my boss, I said, you know, I don't know if you noticed, but there's a, a, a mess over there. Who should I tell about that? He said to me this. He said, if you see it, it's your job to fix it. Right. Now, you know, you could take that too far, I suppose, because, you know, there's, there's a sense in which sometimes it is somebody else's job. But I love that mentality. If you see it, own responsibility for fixing it. Because the worst thing that can happen is when somebody says, well, that's not my job. I mean, have you ever had oh. that experience? Oh my gosh. You know, um, actually, I have a few times. And typically when I have, those people end up getting fired. <laughs> I mean, I'm just going to be totally honest. It's like probably the most offensive thing you can say to me. I know, I really am tough. <laughs> well, I, I hate that. I, I remember hearing Dan Sullivan say, and I know you heard it too, a recent podcast where he, he was talking about the airline industry. And, you know, the sort of the, the buck passing that often happens in that industry. And he said, you know, it seems like their motto is, you know, we're not happy till you're not happy. 
so funny and unfortunately was, so true. I thought that was so great. But at any rate, but taking responsibility, don't pass the buck. Don't shift blame. Own it. I'll give you a great example that happened just today. So, Megan, you know, because you and I have been talking and doing some things today. We've been recording some things. We've been doing some various projects together. And I complained to my executive assistant, Jim. And I said to him, I said, Jim, I said, my calendar is too packed today. My schedule's too packed. I, I, I just can't do all this front stage activity in one day. Now, here's what Jim could have said. Jim could have said, well, you know, there's just so many requests. We had to try to squeeze them in today. Or what I kind of half expected him to say is, hey, boss, you approved all these things. Do you remember? <laughs> but he didn't say that. Here's what he said. He said, I'm sorry about that. I'll try to fix it going forward. He yeah, owned that's it. That's great. I, I love that. That's exactly what you want. No yeah. drama, no complaint. I didn't have to argue with him. He just owned it. That's one of the reasons why he's like the best executive assistant I've ever had. Mm -hmm. And I hope he never leaves. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, in fact, this is so central from our perspective that it's one of our values in our company. We have eight values, eight core values, and we call it total ownership. And here's what it says. It says, we believe individual and collective leadership drives results. When we fail, we own it, resolve it, and learn the lessons to avoid it in the future. And I would add to that, you know, when we see opportunities or problems, we take responsibility for solving those things, regardless of our position, regardless of expectation, we just lean in and we, when we fix it. Yep. And if, and if you're not the person, if it's not your job, you find the person and you make sure that they follow through, especially when it's a customer thing. Right. So like when the customer makes a complaint and you're not the person to fix it, you oversee the project until you know that it's fixed. Mm -hmm. Check back in with the customer, make sure that it's completed to their satisfaction. I love that. You see that sometimes in some businesses when you call customer service and they say, oh, well, you're going to have to talk to billing. Let me get them on the phone for you. And they stay with you yeah. until the connection's made. That's what tonal ownership looks like. Now, I would, I would be remiss if I didn't mention a book that had a big influence mm -hmm. on this, which is um, Extreme Ownership by Jocko Willink and Leif Babin. Great Great book we had, I think, at the time. Everybody in our company read it. Yeah, it's so but good. That's a great place to start. It's a great book, by the way, to give uh, young adults. I mean, man, if you can get that mindset uh, baked in early, it would be so helpful. But what I love about this particular trait, this mindset trait, is that it's so empowering. Just think about it. You know, so often we feel like, well, sheesh, everything that we read in the news right now just feels so disempowering. And I mean, in many ways, we really don't have control of those things. But the thing that we can control is taking ownership of the things that are within our sphere of influence and control. You know, that is is within our grasp. And man, when people take a hold of that, when they really start thinking about what can I take control of? What can I take ownership of? You know, I can take ownership of solutions. I can take ownership of brainstorming. I can take ownership of my attitude. I can take ownership of helping people. I can take ownership of innovation and creativity. All of a sudden, not only does it actually drive results and all that's great, but it really changes how you feel, your, your sense of self-efficacy. You know, you no longer feel like a victim. You feel like you're driving uh, the bus again, which is a great place to be and really necessary right now. So true. And in my new book, Entrepreneurs Will Save the World, I talk about eight mindset kind of attributes. And so again, we're only talking about four of them, but if you want the complete list of eight, and these are developed in depth in the book, 
Entrepreneurs Will Save the World. And you can find that at entrepreneurswillsavetheworld.com. So one of the things that we should say before we leave the specific mindset attribute is that we're not talking when we say ownership about over-controlling other people, micromanaging other people. We're talking about taking responsibility for the things that we can control and improving them. So not passing the buck, not giving it to somebody else, but taking responsibility for ourselves. So, you know, influence is something else. Control is something else, but we're talking about taking responsibility for ourselves. Yeah, I think that's an important point to make um, because actually what you want to do if you're a leader is you want to inspire other people to take ownership. Like taking ownership doesn't mean you're taking ownership of other people's uh, work and all that kind of stuff where you're micromanaging and, you know, just becomes ridiculous. This is really kind of like a sense of empowerment and responsibility that you want other people in your organization, on your team to catch so that everybody's doing this. And if everybody's doing this, then there's no need to micromanage because everybody's kind of owning their own stuff. Okay. So the first trait of an entrepreneurial mind is ownership. The second one that we wanted to talk about today was resourcefulness. Meg, you want to get us started there? Okay, I love this one. So we've been talking a lot lately about constraints because it's so appropriate to this year. There's so many constraints, right? So many challenges to try to figure out and overcome. And what we've been talking about is the need to really make friends with those constraints and see them as opportunities in disguise, that see them as things that give birth to innovation. And so resourcefulness is basically saying, okay, I have these few random things. You know, I don't have all the resources I want. I don't have all the money. I don't have all the time. I don't have all the people, you know, all whatever, all the expertise that I need. But here is what I do have. What can I do with these things? And how can I make them um, exponentially more than the sum of their parts. You know, how how can I do something um, that looks at these resources that anybody else would say, this is not enough and make them more than enough. And so I love this because it causes people to think about their resources in creative ways. Um, for example, you know, maybe you think, uh, well, we can't meet in person and that's that, ugh, that that really sets us back. You know, there's no way we can serve our, our clients unless we can have them in person. But what if you could actually serve them at a higher level because they're not in person? What if that meant you could save them time? What if it meant you could deliver a more efficient efficient presentation or product? What if it meant it could be more enjoyable, more entertaining? Um, you know, if the medium allowed you to do things that you couldn't actually do in person. Um, so there's, you, you just want to basically look at something that you would normally see in one way as a negative and actually ask yourself, why is this a benefit? You know, what does this make possible, as you often say, Dad? Okay, so let me give you an out-of-the-box out of example of this. So on every flight, a flight attendant has to come out and go through the safety instructions. And at the same time, one of the things that every airline wants is customer loyalty. Southwest figured out how to do that in a, in a really interesting way. So in-flight humor is a hallmark of Southwest Airlines, right? And the levity of that originated with one flight attendant, Martha, Marty, as she was known, Cobbs, and has since become part of the company's brand. And if you've ever been on a, on a Southwest Airlines flight, you're not sure if you're at a Las Vegas show or if you're on an airline flight because they feel the need to entertain you. And it's kind of a, you know, it's a great way to spend what would otherwise be a very boring experience going through the safety announcement. But that quirky 
flight safety announcement that she pioneered and now passed on to all of her colleagues, they, they're worth an estimated, get this, $140 million a year in increased wow. customer loyalty. What an amazing example of resourcefulness. I mean, she took something that other people would look at as, you know, obligatory and boring, and it's the part where everybody puts their headphones in and tunes out, right? And she said, uh-uh, there's an opportunity here. There's something we can do with this that nobody else has thought of before. And what if we made it amazing? And what if it caused our customers to be absolutely committed to us and loyal to us in the future. And I mean, I would say $140 million is over-delivering beyond anybody's expectations for that. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so the first one is ownership. The second trait is resourcefulness. And the third is risk tolerance. Mm -hmm. Okay, so when we talk about risk, risk can happen at a lot of different levels. And so when you think of the classical entrepreneur as a position, you're thinking of financial risk or the risk of capital for the sake of a gain, right? So they invest something, they might lose it all, their, their business might completely fail, and they've lost all their capital. But risk takes on a variety of forms, and particularly if you're not an entrepreneur in the classic sense, but you have an entrepreneurial mindset inside some other organization, even a nonprofit. So the risk, at the very least, could be to your time. You know, you invest your time to solve this problem and you're unable to solve it for whatever reason. Or the risk could be to your rep reputation. You take on a project, it, you know, you fall on your face, it doesn't work out. And so, you know, there's a risk there. Maybe there's a risk to, to being demoted or whatever it is, losing a promotion that you wanted to get. So there's always a risk involved. But when you take those risks, you have the opportunity for a gain. And I remember my dad telling me nothing ventured, nothing gained. In other words, if you don't venture something, if you don't put something at risk, it's very difficult to move forward. And the opposite of this is just staying inside your comfort zone, right? right? Never risking anything, maintaining the status quo, not changing. The people that do that, and there are a lot of people that do that, and more and more there are people that do that, those are people that complain about the fact that they don't advance. They don't advance in their career. They don't advance financially. They don't advance in terms of helping the world, but they're not putting anything at risk. And risk is a necessary condition for that kind of improvement. You know, what's kind of interesting about this one is that especially right now, not taking risks is actually riskier than taking what we think of as risks. You know, Say more. Well, okay. So let's think about restaurants, for example. This is like such a, an example I think we can all relate to. And it's just right there at the forefront of our mind. So, you know, COVID hits, uh, the lockdowns happen, people can't go to restaurants. Well, what's riskier for a restaurant? To figure out how to do takeout, to figure out how to do curbside delivery, or to refuse to adapt and stick to their original business model no matter what? McDonald's during the COVID crisis is so incredibly efficient at moving people through their drive-through that it's more profitable than in dining room eating. Yeah. That's kind of an example, a little bit of both risk tolerance and resourcefulness, which we were just talking about, right? Like, so they have this, this resource of drive-through and they figured out how to leverage it in a totally new way. And by doing that, they took a big risk, but really they just pursued a big opportunity. Yeah, so risk can be scary, but I think that once we realize that growth is impossible without risk, I don't mm -hmm. care if it's personally or professionally, 
There's no growth that's possible without some kind of risk. Your time, your talent, your treasure, your reputation, whatever it may be. Once you realize that, you can suddenly, you can begin to get comfortable with discomfort. And I think that's that's where we really want to get to with the entrepreneurial mindset. So that we realize, and we talk about this, for example, in our, in our goal setting program, Your Best Year Ever, where we talk about setting your goals in the discomfort zone. Why? Because it's there where you're willing to take a risk. And usually when we're taking a risk, we're more focused. Mm-hmm. We're more intentional. Why? Because there's a downside. And nothing sort of galvanizes our focus like the risk of losing something. And I'm not talking about crazy you know, uncalculated risks where we're just uh, being irresponsible. No, I'm talking about calculated risks, but there has to be that component. I remember one of the things that happened to me back at uh, Thomas Nelson when I was leading a division there, one of the things I did at some risk to my reputation and even my career was that um, I decided to share the financials in my division with the people in my division. That had never been done before. It wasn't encouraged. In fact, it was actively discouraged. So information was kept at the very top of the company. It never trickled down to the troops that were in the field. So I decided, and I knew that if I if I was found out before the results came in, that I'd probably be shut down. I didn't know quite what the consequence was going to be, but I thought the risk was worth it because I, I had this fundamental belief that transparency would lead to engagement. So if people understood the score, if they knew how we were performing as a division, that they would be actively engaged in trying to turn the division around, which is exactly what we needed. And that's exactly what happened. I told the CEO it would take us three years to turn that division around. It took us a year and a half. And it was because of that transparency. Now, again, it was a risk to me. I had to take the risk to do that. I knew that that could get me in trouble. But I also operated by this premise that it's easier to get forgiveness than permission, <laughs> right? So uh, so it, 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 it worked. And then once it did work, guess what happened inside the corporation? There was a sea change culturally. That became the norm because they could see that that kind of transparency led to engagement, which affected the results in a positive way. I love that story. And I, I really think the other part of this that is kind of baked into the idea of risk tolerance is kind of a comfort level or an acceptance of failure as part of life and as something that is not something to be feared, but it's something to be learned from. And it's something that's just going to be part of our entrepreneurial journey, regardless of whether that's in the traditional sense or a more non-traditional sense. Um, Because I think people who are afraid of failing more than anything else, they're afraid of being embarrassed. They're afraid of, of, you know, losing money. They're afraid of things not working. They just don't take chances. And as a result, they don't grow. And really, the only options are, are grow and go backwards. You know, there's really no such thing as being stuck in one place because everything's always moving. So you're either kind of sliding backwards or you're, or you're moving up. And so I think that kind of willingness to make friends with failure is part of this journey. And it's, it's always kind of a possibility is good. You know, we, we try things that don't work all the time. You know, we, we've tried things this year that haven't worked as well as we thought. And we've tried things this year that have worked way better than we thought. And that's just like a normal year for us. We try a lot of things and some of them work and some of them don't work as well. And that that is just part of what we consider to be our entrepreneurial spirit, our entrepreneurial mindset. We fail more than you know, because <laughs> we don't we don't broadcast our failures, but but we have pretty frequent failures yeah. and it's out of those failures that a lot of opportunity comes, that a lot of change happens. But I want to say a special word to leaders. If you're leading a team, 
let me say a special word to you. You need to make your culture safe for failure. Mm-hmm. I am not saying you need to encourage failure, but it will happen. And how you respond to failure will determine whether or not people take risks. That's right. And so, Megan, I'd like to talk just for a, for a second here about what we do inside Michael Hyde and Company to, to create an environment, to create a culture that's safe for failure. Well, first of all, I think we contextualize it. I mean, I, I, it, the minute we stop failing at stuff is the minute we've stopped being creative and innovating and growing. So to me, our failure in the way that I frame that, and I think you frame it, is that it's a, uh, a hallmark of a fast-growing, innovative, forward-thinking company. We're trying things. We're taking risks. We're, uh, we're out on the cutting edge. You know, if everything we do works exactly like we think, Mm, we're playing it way too safe. We're doing it wrong. We're playing it way too safe. So I think how you set it up is huge. And then also, and this is something we learned from Dan Sullivan, when you get to the point of, you know, the goal was supposed to be accomplished by such and such a date. And let's say you fell short by 10% or 40%. Um, and now you have a choice. How, how are you going to talk about that with your team? What we learned from Dan Sullivan, as he says, is that you measure the gain, not the gap. So you're always in the process of pursuing a goal. You're always looking at what what has to happen between here and the goal to get to the finish line. But once you're at the finish line, even if you didn't make it across the finish line, you look backwards and note how far did we come? What happened along the way? Who did we become? You know, what were what's different now about us that's great that wasn't true before we started pursuing this goal. And so I think what that does for our team members is all of a sudden they realize that there are so many things that have been gained besides just the accomplishment of the goal in the strictest sense itself. That that pursuing a goal all by itself is worth it, is worth taking the risk, and therefore we should have the risk tolerance in our mindset to do that because what we get on the way to the goal is as valuable as the goal itself. So true. And I think one of the things we have to do as leaders is encourage the team when they fail and help point out the gain to them. Mm -hmm. Because if you have really good people, and we have really good people, they're hard on themselves. They're too hard on themselves. You know, they can fall short of a goal by 2% and fixate on the 2% they missed instead of the fact that, you know, they made some vast improvement over the last time they tried it. And sometimes it's up to us to contextualize and give perspective and give them the confidence, help them keep their confidence as they move forward. So again, to quote Dan Sullivan, measure uh, the gain, not the gap. Don't get stuck in the gap. Okay, again. Four traits of an entrepreneurial mind. Number one, ownership. Number two, resourcefulness. Number three, risk tolerance. And Megan, this might be my my favorite one. Number four, resilience. Yeah. I feel like this word has just been out there so much this year and for good reason, because it really is the central question that we're being asked as leaders. And I mean that in whatever sense you find yourself a leader. Are we going to let ourselves be uh, hit and therefore knocked down? you know, and that's going to take us out? Or are we going to be resilient, which really means to bounce back, you know, to persevere, to keep going when things are hard. And I think that is where the rubber meets the road. And it's really the thing that differentiates master leaders from amateurs. You know, funny illustration of this, this last weekend, as you know, because you were there, we were at our lake house Mm -hmm. and we were taking the kids, the grandkids tubing. They love this. And they, and they love, especially when I can whip them in what we call a slingshot maneuver, where they have this momentum and go faster 
you know, then the boat's going and they swing around to the right or to the left. So we were on this uh, disc tube that kind of had a hard surface and we never used this before. And one granddaughter did great on it. And then we had Lincoln, one of my youngest grandsons on it. How old's Lincoln? Lincoln is seven. Uh, ew, I think seven, six yeah, or seven. seven. Oh my gosh. Six or seven. Anyway, I can barely remember the ages of my own five kids. <laughs> it's, a, it's a moving target. It's a moving target. Well, at any rate, he's on it. And so I, I do a maneuver on him and he, and he just fell. I was doing a slingshot maneuver. He fell. And so he motions for me with his hands to, you know, to cut it. And he's screaming at the top of his lungs. He's crying. <laughs> I, I whip around in the boat. You know, I think he's half dead. And he was saying, you know, I fell on my, my stomach and he's holding his stomach and he's, you know, giving us this, this huge thing. And I said, well, buddy, you know, I'm so sorry. Let's, let's come on and we'll give somebody else a turn. And he said, no, I want another turn. <laughs> That's resilience. Right. Get back you on know? the horse. Back on the horse. Yep. I can remember back when I was a kid, my dad bought me a horse. Yep. And the first time I rode it, I was I was out in a freshly plowed field. And so I fell off the horse right on my bum, as our Canadian friends would say, right on my bum and started crying. My dad came over, grabbed me by the shirt and said, son, get back on the horse. That's resilience. Yep. And I think any entrepreneur worth their salt is going to fail and is going to fail repeatedly. But here's the thing, and this is my operating premise for life. You can't fail if you don't quit. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I sound like I'm preaching because I really believe this. You can't fail if you don't quit. If you get up, dust yourself up, and keep going, you'll eventually succeed. You'll eventually figure it out. That's right. And this is the difference maker. You know, this is the superpower of leaders, of contributors in any way. If we can access resilience, if we can get knocked but not be knocked down ultimately, um, man, if you just don't quit, where you can uh, arrive to is really, really amazing. So I I love this trait. Oh, actually, I don't. I hate this trait. I, I, love, <laughs> I love the yield of this trait, which um, is really, really valuable. It's I want my kids to be resilient. I want my employees to be resilient. Um, I want to be resilient. And I think we get better at it by practicing. So apparently, we just got the best year ever <laughs> for, for practicing resilience. I mean, life has a way of giving you what you need. Right. If you kind of embrace it and, and again, start with that question that we started this episode with, and that is, what does this make possible? This makes possible me not quitting, you know, because I have a choice. I could either quit. And by the way, this doesn't mean that, that sometimes, you know, you have to put the Band-Aid on. Sometimes you have to have a good cry. Sometimes you have oh, yeah, to, sure. you know, sit in the grief of, of whatever the loss was. But ultimately... If you're going to be successful, you got to get back up and take another run at it. What's great about resilience, too, is that ultimately it's the thing that gives you confidence because you know that you've been hit before and you've gotten back up and you've found a way through or you've you know found another way or whatever. And it gives you so much confidence when you look back. So that's one of the things that I really do like about resilience is the more you practice it, the better you get at it and the more confident you become, which then enables you to take more risks, to, to have more risk tolerance, as we were talking about, to be more resourceful, to take more ownership. Um, so there, these are all, all these traits are kind of self-reinforcing. Um, you know, I, I feel like I need to just mention this because so many leaders are thinking about this right now. If you have a team that 
is a little discouraged or a little demoralized after this year, you know, you kind of feel like people's energy is low or um, you're just not quite sure how to motivate people and help them feel empowered again. I really want to suggest that you get this book, Entrepreneurs Will Save the World, and you can just go to entrepreneurswillsavetheworld.com and consider giving this to your team members, you know, or your colleagues, because this could be a shot in the arm for your team, really revive them, re-energize them for the rest of the year. Um, and I think that is a thing that we all feel like we need right now. So that's a big reason that, uh, Dad, you wrote this book. And it's a big hope for us is that uh, leaders and their teams and business owners, uh, people inside organizations of, of every kind will feel energized and excited about what they can control and feel empowered again. Well, and I wrote it as an answer to the question, you know, what will help our economy bounce back? Yeah. And I really believe it's this entrepreneurial mindset that we've been talking about today. And just to, again, review, we've talked about the traits of ownership, the traits of resourcefulness, risk tolerance, and resilience. And there's four more in the book and a whole lot more about being an entrepreneur, not in the classical sense of it being a position, but being an entrepreneur, regardless of where you fall inside of your organization. We want everybody inside our organization. We want as many people as possible to become entrepreneurs, to really take on the problems that all of us are, are facing together because it is entrepreneurs that will save the world. Well, Dad, I think this has been a great episode. I love talking about these entrepreneurial mindset traits. I think um, it gives us all something to go work on that we can work on. And I love that. Share this with your, uh, your friends, your colleagues, your teammates, your staff. I think they will be encouraged also. But thank you guys for joining us today. And until next week, lead to win. This episode of Lead to Win is brought to you by Michael Hyatt's new book, Entrepreneurs will save the world. Discover how anyone can build the resilient mindset of an entrepreneur. Learn more at leadto.win slash entrepreneurs.